Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater and happy 4th of July. My name is Tim and if I've not gotten a chance to meet you, I am excited that you guys are here with us on this amazing weekend. So let me ask you, how many of you have ever heard the name Bill Bowerman? A few, okay. Well, in the 1970s, Bill Bowerman was the track coach at the University of Oregon. And they were installing a new track. And uh, Coach Bowerman had an athlete, a former athlete, who had started a shoe company called Blue Ribbon Sports. And as they were installing this new track, he found out that the traditional metal spikes were tearing up this track. And so Coach Bowerman began to search out different ideas of track spikes that could work on any surface, grass, dirt, bark chips, whatever it is. And then um, as he is investigating this and thinking about this, there happens to be a weekend where he is in his kitchen with his wife Barbara and she is making breakfast. And while they're making breakfast, she's actually cooking waffles and she pulls out a waffle and she's making them probably on a waffle skillet like this or waffle maker looks like that. And she pulls out a waffle and he sees the indents and he thinks, wow, look at that pattern. And he begins to think, okay, if you took that waffle and you kind of turned it upside down and that part of the waffle, that indent was turned out and that part was facing the track, that might be a pattern that we could use for these spikes. Because all he saw was that pattern, he saw that as a potential mold for some sort of rubber spikes. And he had this epiphany thinking this is something that could totally change how we run and how we make track shoes. So he went into his garage, and he gets two cans of whatever it is to pour in and make urethane, and he pours it into his wife's waffle maker. Great idea, guys. And he forgets to add a catalyst to it, so there's no releasing agent, and he seals the waffle iron shut, and he's unable to open it, Good job, coach. And he runs into town and he buys two more waffle makers, not for his wife, but for his experiment. And he then pours plaster into these new waffle makers, takes the mold to the rubber company, has them pour rubber into it, and it's, it's too brittle, so it breaks. So he goes back home into his garage, gets a, peel, a piece of steel sheet metal, pulls it out, and he begins punching holes into it, making a waffleized pattern. He brings that to the rubber company. They pour rubber into it, and he comes back with two foot-size pieces of rubber with waffle-like nubs all over it. And then he takes that rubber, and he begins to sew it into the bottom of a track shoe, and it probably looked something like this. Gives it to one of his runners. They lace it up, and he runs like a rabbit. It is incredible. You see, he had an epiphany. An epiphany is an idea that leads to action. He had an epiphany that sparked a response. And this response was going to revolutionize the entire shoe industry. In fact, in 1974, the waffle trainer made its debut and changed shoes forever. Blue Ribbon Sports would eventually change their name to Nike. And Bill Bowerman, with his idea, with his epiphany, changed everything. 
And so you can have an idea like, like Bill Bowerman. You can know something about things or ideas and never use it. Likewise, you can know something about cars and have no idea how to drive one. You can know something about the Bible. You can know some truths about God and scripture and never live by it. So how do we take an idea like Bill had that revolutionized the entire shoe industry? What does it take to change our lives? What does it take to change our families, our community, our nation? Well, today we're going to be talking about the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to see an epiphany that sparks not just a response, but complete revival. And so that's where we're going to be today, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Open your phone, go to your Bible app, Nehemiah chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the background. Last summer, we studied the book of Nehemiah before I was even here. And uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was a cupbearer for the king. He tasted the wine, tasted the food, make sure it wasn't poisonous. And while he's doing this, God begins to stir a burden in Nehemiah's heart for Jerusalem. And there are people, there was a small group of exiles that are, came back to Jerusalem, and the walls around Jerusalem have been destroyed. The gates, their, their safety fence is completely demolished. And so Jerusalem is sitting there unprotected, unsafe, and Nehemiah has this burden, and he goes to the king, and he actually asks the king's permission, can we go and rebuild those walls? The king gives him full permission. He goes there. He starts building these walls, and people come to him. They come bullying him. They try to blackmail him. They try to do whatever they can to stop him, and he perseveres. He pushes through, and they complete this wall in 52 days. It's incredible because he built the wall, and it's actually four and a half miles long. It's 20 feet wide. It's 20 feet tall, and he does it with a bunch of unskilled laborers. And he does it in 52 days. And that was the easy part. The hard part comes in chapter 8, 9, and 10, where Nehemiah is now trying to rebuild and change the hearts of the people. And so that's where we start off. Nehemiah, we'll actually start reading in the last verse of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, verse 1, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So Nehemiah, they finished the wall. It's taken them 52 days. And instead of meeting in the temple, they meet outside this gate. I think they meet not in the temple because they don't really want to be segregated. Because inside the temple, they would have had different courts, courts for Gentiles, courts for women, courts for priests. They would have had different restrictions, who can come in, who can go out, all these different rules. And they didn't want to be separated. They had just finished this, this in, 
incredible work project, and now they want to be all together as a community, as a body of people. And so that's what they do. It says the, the first day of the seventh month, this is the Feast of Trumpets. They are going to be preparing their hearts for the next 10 days to dedicate themselves, bringing burnt offerings and sin offerings and not working at all, really just preparing their hearts for the Day of Atonement. They're putting that re- pushing that restart button. As they prepare their hearts, the one thing that they want is they want this man named Ezra to come and read God's word and preach to them. Ezra is a priest. In fact, Ezra has a burden for the people of Israel, and he actually went to Jerusalem 14 years before Nehemiah got there because he's so passionate about God and his word and these people. And Ezra has been trying to get these people to turn back towards God. He's been trying to be that, that catalyst. And so they ask Ezra to come and read. And listen, it says that he read scripture from daybreak till noon. Now, this morning, it, the sun came up around 5.30 in the morning. So 5.30 in the morning to about noon is six or seven hours of church. Who wants that? Nobody said amen. Okay. Okay, if I go like five minutes over my sermon, Dawn is in the back pacing back and forth. The workers in the children's ministry have their faces plastered against the glass. Like they can't wait. And here they read God's word for six or seven hours. That's crazy. You would not be napping. It would be awesome. We'll try it next weekend. He probably read the book of Deuteronomy, which took two hours and 15 minutes. I didn't time it. Somebody else told me that. And, uh, but it's verse 7 and 8 says they stopped, and they would, they would read a little bit, and they would explain it. They would read a little bit, and they would explain it. They would read a little bit, and they would explain it to the people. And so what happens is they are listening attentively. They have an incredible hunger for God's word. Can you imagine having that kind of desire that you are just fixated, you're just focused, you're just zeroed in because you want to know what's going to happen, you want to understand so badly that for six or seven hours you're willing to listen and hear. And maybe the difference was is, is they didn't really have their own Bibles, They didn't have books back then. They had scrolls, and scrolls were pretty rare, and they didn't have a Bible app, so you couldn't just download the newest version. You couldn't go on Amazon. And so there was likely that they didn't get an opportunity to hear God's word that often. And when they did, it was rare, and they wanted to hear God's word. And they wanted to hear to understand. And for those of you who have little kids, you kind of know the difference, right? I have little kids, and I'll talk to them, and I can tell when they're paying attention and when they're not. And there's sometimes I'm talking to them, and what I think is really important, they don't seem too focused on. They're doing other things. They're coloring, and I'll ask them, did you hear me? Yes, I heard you, and okay, what did I say? And they repeat it back to me, but they didn't seem like they were really paying attention. Israel is listening They are tuned in. They're not just gathering more information, but they really want to understand. They want to be able to distinguish the difference 
and want to gather, how do I live this out? They have an incredible hunger for God's word. You can know something. You can have an idea like Bill Bowerman did and never use what you know. Is that us? Maybe you know something about God's word. Maybe you know some truths about God, but do we really live it out? I want to show you from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. The Bible is incredibly powerful. Well, look at this. For the word of God is alive, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges our thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is sharper than any arrow or sword. It just dives right in. Think of like an arrow going into a deer or an animal. It begins to work its way in all the way through. That's the power of the word of God. Do you read God's word? Do you interact with God's word? Do you allow it to cut and divide and shape and discern your thoughts and your attitudes? See, they were hungry for God's word. And they're experiencing the power of God's word. So what does it take to see change in our lives, in our families, in our communities? It starts with us. That's the first point. That as we interact with God's word, it's got to start with us. And so often we are focused on everybody else. Well, look at what they're doing. Or look at what they posted on social media. Or look how they treat their family. Or look what they're not doing. And the reality is, if we want to change, if we want to change our families, our communities, our country, it starts with us. And as we open up God's word, we've got to allow it to convict us and change us. Imagine what would happen if we began to see our sin as the biggest sin in the room. We weren't focused on what everybody else was doing, but we were focused on us. So we need to start with us. We need to start by examining God's word. And if you're new to the faith or you, you don't really read the Bible that much, I would encourage you to start reading God's word more. Now, what is more? Well, I don't know how much you read God's word. I don't know how much you read it last week or the week before. But I would imagine there's some people in here who have read it zero times last week. And I'm not here to pick on you or give you a hard time. But if that's you, the goal this week is to read it two or three times. If you read it once or twice, the goal is to read it three or four times. And, and pick something that is workable and doable for you. I want you to get a quick win underneath your belt this week. In fact, we have these incredible tools. They're, they're designed for teenagers, but we give them to adults too. They're called the on-track devotion. And this is a tool that will help you read and understand God's word. There's a devotional in there. There are questions in there, and it will help you. And I think reading God's word is scalable. I mean, it's like when I, I taught my son Andrew how to do pull-ups. And when he first started, he couldn't do a pull-up. And so I put a stool underneath the, we had some rings in our garage. I had him grab the rings and the stool, and he just, he crouched down, and he did jumping pull-ups. We scaled the exercise. 
And now he can do full pull-ups. And so reading the Bible is, is a skill. And so maybe you don't have a lot of time in your day. Or maybe you're super busy or maybe quite honest, you're just kind of forgetful. Or maybe we're lazy. And so you think, well, I don't really have time. So do a little bit. A little bit is better than none. Or maybe you look at that devotion you're like, that's a lot, Tim. That's going to take me a long time. Okay, just read it and answer a couple questions or answer one question. Do something. Scale it back because doing something is better than nothing and aim for something that is doable. If you don't read it at all, do two or three times. Reading God's word will change your life Look what happens in verse 4. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkali, Messiah, and on his left were a bunch of other guys. <laughs> verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them as he opened it. The people all stood up. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all, of his, all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, a bunch of other guys, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So they have an incredible reverence for God's word. It's so important to them that when God, when they hear God's word being read, they stand up. And this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. But that's the kind of awe and reverence and respect they have for God's word. As Ezra is reading it, they're standing on their feet. Not for 30 minutes but for six to seven hours as they read and hear from God's word. That's incredible. And God's word is stirring them to worship. They fall on their face and they are worshiping God because his word is powerful. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And they respond by lifting up hands. Really, that's a, a response showing, I am depending on God. I need God in my life. And so they're responding, but they're also responding with incredible conviction. He says, don't weep. The word of God is meant to convict us. It should shape our thoughts and our attitudes. And we need to start with us. As I look at God's word, do I look at it and do I say, okay, what needs to change with Tim? Or do I look at it and go, wow, that's really cool. That's, that's nice. I'm just going to keep moving on. We've got to start with us. Allow God's word to change you. And then, then they're also, they're going out and they're helping other people explain the word. 
The Levites are there and they're going into different groups and they're helping other people understand and apply and implement the word of God. Do you help other people understand God's word? Even if you don't understand everything, I don't understand everything. Who is in your life that you can share God's word with? Who is in your life that you can help them understand more about who God is? An epiphany is is an idea that leads to action. You can know something about the Bible and never live by it. You guys know something about the Bible. Are you living by it? Are you helping others know who God is? They read God's word, they make observations, they interpret it, they apply it, and then they implement it. I think there's a big difference between application and implementation. Application is me waking up this morning, and and let's say I wake up and I look in the mirror and I see like a two-inch gray hair sticking out of my forehead. A good idea, a good application would be like, Tim, you need to do something about that. Implementation is removing that hair. Reading God's word is looking at it and go, okay, here's what I need to do. Implement it meaning I'm going to grab one of these, and on my way out, I'm going to say, hey, will you text me tomorrow and ask me, did I read my Bible? That's implementing it. And then tomorrow, when you text me and say, Tim, did you read the Bible? Now I choose. Am I going to be honest and say yes or no? If I say no, then hey, I got to start doing it. They're convicted by his word. What does it take to see change in our lives? What does it take to see change in our families, in our community? Here's the second point. They help others know God. Who are you helping to know God? Is there another believer in your life that you are taking responsibility to come alongside them and help them know God? July Um, 16th and 17th, we're going to have something called the Day of Prayer. It's primarily on Saturday from 5 o'clock to 11 o'clock, and we want you to sign up for a half-hour slot. If that doesn't work for you, we'll do an abridged version on Sunday, but the main part of it is Saturday. We want you to come here because we're going to have prayer stations all throughout the building, and we want you to sign up with your friends or your family or come by yourself, and this is important. Because those of you who who know how to pray, you should come here because it would be really important for others to pray with you. Maybe you're like, Tim, I don't really like to pray. I don't really want to pray out loud. That makes me uncomfortable. You should come because you get to listen to other people in our church pray with you. And we are a community. We are a church. We're a body. And what would happen if we began to pray for people who are far from God, people from our community. There's going to be stations where you can, they're going to prompt you to be thankful, to, to confess sin, to pray and meditate on God and who he is. And that can be a catalyst in your life to radically change you. So I want you to sign up. We have a sign-up sheet by the Welcome Center. Sign up for a half-hour slot. That is going to be incredibly significant in the life of our church. All right, moving on, verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. There's a potluck. There's a big old church dinner going on afterwards. Send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve 
for the joy of the Lord is what? Is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went, astray, went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families along with the priests and the Levites gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses and their Israelites were to live in, what? Temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month? Psh, that's crazy. And that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So what did they do? The people went out and they brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their roofs and in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate. So they read God's word and immediately they go and they apply and they implement it. An application would be like, hey, I think you should go get sticks, branches, and trees and build a house. Implementing it is gathering your family, going out and dragging those branches back and they're living in huts and lean-tos, but they have perfectly good homes to live in. Why are they doing something so crazy? Because God's word says to do it. God says, this is what you ought to do. It looks crazy, sounds bizarre. Are you willing to do what he says? Verse 17, the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and they lived in them from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great they were convicted and grieved by the word of God so many times we have what I would call a worldly sorrow something happens in your life and you feel bad about it because you, you lost your job or you lost your friends or there was a negative consequence. And you feel bad for a moment. And then you go back to that same habit. You go back to that same behavior. You go back into that same pattern. And what they're experiencing is not a worldly sorrow. They're experiencing a godly sorrow. There is a difference between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. The worldly sorrow focuses on the world, but a godly sorrow focuses on God. When you read God's word and do you allow it to convict you, are you sad? Are you broken? That Hey, not because I've sinned and I have, I have consequences here today, but am I grieved? Am I sad because I've sinned against the holy, almighty God? They're experiencing a godly sorrow that changes them. As Westerners, we like to think in steps. Okay, if I do this, this, and this, then I'm done. Then I move on to the second step. 
I do this, this, and this, and I, I'm done, and I move on. But that's not how spiritual growth works. That's not at all. And they are, they are looking at God's word, and they're just going to keep implementing it and doing it. They read God's word. They understand it. They apply it. And they find great joy. So what does it take to radically change your life, to change our families, our communities? Well, they obey God with great joy. That's point number three. They hadn't obeyed God's word like that in almost a thousand years. And they, they do it. They do it immediately. Right? That's part of obeying God's word with great joy. They do it immediately. They don't sit down and think, okay, what about another work project next year? What does that look like? No, it's right away, immediately. And number two, it's radical. Verse 17 says, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Is your obedience radical? I mean, they're pulling out tree branches and building lean-tos and huts when they have perfectly nice houses and homes to live in. Does your walk with God ask other people or cause other people to ask you questions? Hey, why are you building a hut and a lean-to in your backyard? Hey, why are you doing that? Hey, why aren't you living with your girlfriend or your fiance? Like, why would you not do that? That seems crazy. Oh, well, God's word says this. Why would you make your kids come to church? Isn't that unhealthy? Well, I want my kids to learn about God. My faith is important to me. So I bring them to church. Well, why wouldn't you just buy a brand new car? Just, well, God's word says I should use my money differently. So I, I don't take out a loan for that. I, I try to save up and I try to do this. Do you make decisions based on God's word that cause people to go, hey, well, that's kind of weird. That's kind of bizarre. Well, why do you do that? They obeyed God. It was immediate. It was radical. Well, how can you forgive somebody like that? God's word says I ought to forgive them. So I've promised not to bring it up to them anymore, not to bring it up to anyone else, and not to bring it up to myself. Because they came. They made things right with me. Yeah, it still hurts. I still struggle with it. But I've chosen to cancel the debt. Let me tell you why because that's what Jesus did for you. And their obedience is immediate, it is radical, and it is collective. They obey as a complete nation. They decide this is what we're going to go and do. All in. We're all together in this. Wait, are you sure? Should, should we all obey God? Or I, I just, I'd, I'd feel better if I saw everybody else go first. Well, maybe I'll just, I'll go to the day of prayer, but only if there's like 10 or 15 other people that I know. No, just, just sign up. Let's all do it. Let's all be a part of that. Let's all make a decision. We're going to read God's word on a regular basis. If we want to see a revival in our nation, in our community, in our families, in our lives, it starts with us. It starts with you. Us, opening up God's word and allowing God's word to change us. 
And then we need to help other people know who God is. And then we need to obey God with great joy. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, you are incredible. It's amazing that we have this account about Nehemiah and what you are doing in the life of Israel and through Nehemiah and through Ezra. And God, it's our desire that you would radically change who we are. That we would carve out time to spend with you in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of our busy, hectic schedules, that we would set aside a few moments of our day, open up your word, and be with you. I pray for everyone who calls Bridgewater home, that as they listen to your word, they would listen attentively. They would listen to understand. They would listen to apply. And God, I ask that you would use your word and your Holy Spirit to shape and mold our hearts. Help us to think your thoughts. Help us to love the things that you love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you guys to stand. We're going to sing one more song.